0: Today, as, as you know, we've talked about the, the 50% of Stanford and UCF medical students who say they're never going to practice medicine. When I did it, I was clearly a lunatic.
1: This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health.
2: Although his dad was a prominent politician who eventually became Speaker of the House, Alive Corps founder, Dave Albert always knew he wanted to do medicine. It was the passion he discovered for engineering and entrepreneurship that took him and his career by surprise.
1: This is Tectonics. I'm Lisa Soonan.
2: I'm David Shaywitz, and today's episode is brought to you by DNA Nexus, the secure and compliant cloud platform that enables enterprise users to analyze, collaborate around, and integrate massive amounts of genetic and other health data.
1: So, David. Yes. I was super excited to hear one of our recent guests in the news lately, uh, Amy Abernathy at Flatiron, which was acquired by Roche uh, a week or two ago. I saw the Forbes piece you wrote about that. I really enjoyed that.
2: Oh, thanks. Yeah, it was really cool. It's, uh, you know, the like the Colbert bump. We're, we're going to give the tectonics bump. So <laughs> if you want to get acquired for $2.1 billion, come on our show. Good yeah, news, really. Dave. Um, but the um, but what I thought was really interesting about it is, um, the, you know, it really is an example of the interest in using high-quality real-world evidence and virtually clinical le- uh, uh Clinical research level data that they were able to extract from EHRs, and were able to. Um, what, I, what was so striking for me is since the since the acquisition, people have been far more open about the, the amount of manual extraction that happens. I feel like everyone has come out of the closet about that.
1: Yeah, well, I think it's been a very real thing for a very long time, and I'm I'm glad it's finally the dirty little secret is out that you actually need people to operate healthcare. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of things
2: that are very cool, like our friend Amy, we are so excited to be joined this morning by one of my very, very favorite folks in digital health, Dr. Dave Albert of AliveCore. Welcome, Dave. Thank you, uh, David and Lisa. It is an honor for me to, uh, to be with uh, Tectonics. Absolutely. So we're so excited to have you on. You actually are our first guest from Oklahoma.
1: Oklahoma you know
2: O-K-L-A-H-O-M-A Oklahoma okay keep,
1: keep your day job Dave
0: you mean what what in the valley they fly over oh.
1: Oklahoma, where the wind comes
2: sweeping down, down the plain, <laughs> and the wheat wheat wheat. can sure smell sweet <laughs> when the wind comes right All right, all okay. right, all right, Dave. Well, now you, 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 you've had a distinctive <laughs> introduction.
0: I can see this is a stream of consciousness
2: show. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, well, Dave, what I suspect many listeners may not appreciate about you is that, in fact, you really are part of an incredible American success story. Your grandfather was a coal miner. Your dad, Carl, was literally born in a coal mining camp in Oklahoma, yet went on to college, a Rhodes scholarship, and ultimately became one of the more prominent political figures of the 20th century and was Speaker of the House during the Watergate era. I I think that would be a tough act to follow. What do you think?
0: Well, notice, David and Lisa, that I did not go into politics. (laughs) <laughs> so, uh, it is easy for me to have found my own way. I have great respect for my late father and all the things he did. You know, one of one of my great uh, anecdotes, which I've passed on to my wife and I, to our four children, is that you can go into the National Archives and you can look up the 1964 Civil Rights Act and you can see Carl Albert Yay, And that, to me... Uh, It was a wonderful notion for a guy who came out of, in essence, the South and, uh, you know, the the was probably when elected was a Dixiecrat, but along with his friends, uh, Lyndon Johnson and Fulbright realized that the world needed to change. And so I'm very proud of that.
2: Well, as I tell my kids, I am delighted, but not surprised by that. Um, So now you told me that you were inspired by the TV character, Dr. Ben Casey, and that um, from the earliest age, you always wanted to be a doctor. But in your words, you said, to a certain point, you were a really lazy student, something that changed abruptly in sixth grade. Can you tell us about that?
0: Oh, yeah. Well, I was. I was, uh, I think I was a very immature kid. I was coddled. Uh, my parents were older. My parents called me their do it their grandson. My dad was 47 when I was born. And so, uh, you know, I, I, I went to private schools in Washington, D.C. and had never been much of a student. My father had an M.I., a heart attack in 1966. And uh, at that time, the treatment was six weeks of bed rest in the hospital. And so when he finally came home, he caught me one night lying about doing my homework, which I didn't like to do and um, let's just say that that uh, he had a new perspective, and the next morning he walked me into my classroom, where my very british uh, teacher and he said, "David didn't do his homework. he lied to me. it'll never happen again and uh, the result of that was and, and it didn't by the way uh you know. Kids are impressionable, and I was scared to death that my dad was, you know, that that life would come to an abrupt end, and so uh, you know, it led me to to Harvard, and then from Harvard to Duke Medical School and biomedical engineering school at Duke, and so. It, it was a change.
2: You know, you were saying, so you, you became more academically inclined, um, and that even though you were pretty insulated from politics, I guess um, the fact that your dad was so prominent had resulted in some pretty distinctive experiences. Can you tell us about the time that you were going to fl- you know, fly down from Boston, where you were in college, to D.C., as you would do regularly, I think, to uh, to, um, uh and then you got some cryptic call from your mom that this was gonna be a different visit than the others?
0: Yeah, I mean, every morning, my roommates at Harvard hated me our freshman year, but as my father would call at seven in the morning, he had a free telephone, at what they called the FTS, the Federal Telephone Service, and so he would call, that's when, you know, calling was like dollars a minute, and I got, it was a Friday, and I was coming home because I had a girlfriend, and I was going out on a date, and you could take a student flight from Boston to, at that time, National, now Reagan Airport, for about 35 bucks. So I was coming home, and I got a call, and it's my mother, not my dad. That's very unusual. And she said, well, things are going to be a little different today. And I was a maybe not a classic college student. I mean, today they're always connected with their smartphones, but back then I didn't watch the news. Um, so I got on a plane, and as soon as we landed they came on the PA system and said, Would David Albert please stay on the plane? So they pulled up to the gate <laughs> and, he, and everyone gets off. It's
1: like a reverse hijacking. <laughs> and then they go back and they
0: lower the D.B. Cooper stairs at the back of a 727. So this is 1973, the fall of 73. And this large gentleman in a suit comes in and walks up to me. I had no idea what was going on. And he said, David. My name is Gil Perascos and I'm the head of your dad's secret service detail. And I look at and there's my dad's Cadillac limousine and an SUV behind it. And so I go down the back stairs on the tarmac with my backpack and I get in the car and I ask my dad's chauffeur mm-hmm. Irvin what's going on and Gil got in the front seat You're going to have to ask tell your, you know, ask your mom. So we get to our apartment in DC. We get out and there's a person sitting in the lobby. And Gil says hi how you doing and and we go up the elevator we go around the corner where are on the top floor at the end of the hallway and there's a guy in a folding chair reading a newspaper with an open briefcase and the briefcase is open away from me so i can just see the the, the top half is open. <laughs> nice. and as i walk by i look down and there's an uzi submachine gun in the briefcase and i'm knowing i'm going this is weird i get there my mom opens the door hey Gil. hi mrs albert you know, we got him. He's safe. I go going, mom, what's going on? She said, Do "You, ha-? my mother was from Columbia, South Carolina, with a very heavy accent. My friends used to always make fun of it." Honey, uh, <laughs> you haven't watched the news, have you? And I went, "No, mom." The, the vice president had to resign. So that's when Spiro Agnew. Well, that, they caught him. He had taken bribes as the governor of Maryland, so he had to resign. And my dad became first in line for the presidency behind. A president under major attack Richard Nixon and Watergate so my dad instantly got Secret Service coverage they put people in it in our apartment they put a, a mobile home out back and and it was as he called it it was a mess they walked with him into the bathroom okay <laughs> and and of course my concern then was mom are they gonna come with me on my date and she said, no, they tell me that you're, you know, they don't care if you die or not. <laughs> 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 that matters. So, you know, it was, that was, uh, I should have been listening to the news, I—I, I, uh, but, uh, you know, it was a, a
2: surreal episode.
1: Yeah, Dave, that's a distinctive that is, experience. That was pretty crazy. I uh, can only imagine uh, what it must be like to watch the current news and reflect back on that. So just picking up your trail here, I understand you went to Harvard, which is, you know, if if David's bringing a guest, it's because he went to Harvard. So, you know, we'll give him a pass on that. But you decided to be a government major because you knew already you were going to spend the rest of your life in medicine. And then you went to med school at Duke uh, because apparently you like the white pants um, and got yourself involved in some – (laughs) correct. Never Love wear white, white after pants. Labor Day, Dave. And and then you got involved in some cardiovascular research towards um, the later years of your stint at Duke. So, how, what drew you to cardiovascular? How did you know? How was that transition? How did your family feel about you becoming a doctor instead of a, you know, a white shoe, a white pants instead of white shoes?
0: <laughs> well, they were they were very supportive of me becoming a doctor because I said I I was interested in medicine uh, and science my whole life. And, and so that was whether it was science fairs or on taking, you know, a genetics course in high school and elective where there were four of us, we all became physicians and went to Hopkins and UPenn medical schools. Uh, actually, as a matter of fact, half the guys went to Harvard with me, um, as undergrads, basically I went to college and I decided that I'll never again know what my dad does for a living. You know, I know what he does. And I've seen it and I've been to I remember going to Richard Nixon's inauguration and I remember Jack Kennedy's inauguration back in 1960. I was just a kid. Um, So I I decided to become a government major in a pre-med at the same time. And that was a very bad mistake on my part uh, because I was also a varsity athlete and I was I wrestled varsity at Harvard uh, for four years. And so I had no spare time and I had no fun. So college was not any fun for me. It was a lot of work, uh, but you know, it was I, I, hindsight's 2020, 20, And I've told my kids, my last one is a senior in high school and we'll be heading to Harvard by the way in the fall. And we told them all to go, go have, thank you, go have a lot of fun. Uh, go explore a lot of things, go to plays, go to, you know, go to debates, go do all those things that college enables you to do that have no repercussions. And, uh, you know, a couple of my kids, including I have, we have one that's a doctor. Uh, he took advantage of that. i getting called at three in the morning and dad, can you get me a lawyer? You know, that? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: now that's a college uh, experience. Those
0: are just, they, they did what I didn't do. So I, I went on to Duke and I got involved. One of my, my dad's doctors back in Oklahoma was a Duke, was a Princetonian undergrad, Duke medical school, Duke cardiology. And he, uh he introduced me to uh, uh, one of his classmates who later became a mentor who just passed away in last year. And I worked with him. He was one of the real gurus of electrocardiography and he got me involved in that. And then in when I was about to become a fourth year medical student with literally eight months to go, my dad has another heart attack and a pretty minor one. But um, when he finished, when he was out of the hospital, they said, now that things change, he was only in the hospital about six days. Today'd be like two days, but that was six, 1980, 81. And they said, we want you to walk until your heart rate. He lives way out in the country, nowhere close to a, in a cardiac rehab center. And they said, walk until your heart rate gets to 120 and then stop. How am I supposed to know it's 120? And, and my dad was a brilliant guy. And I said, well, you got to take your pulse. There were no heart, apple watches there weren't even polar chest straps yet there was no consumer heart rate technology and so i went to one of my classmates who's now a, a hopkins trained pulmonologist who had been an undergrad biomedical engineer at duke and he said let me introduce you to one of my classmates who's a grad student in biomedical engineering and i went to him and he said oh i can make your heart rate monitor for your dad okay that'll be 200 bucks well 200 bucks to a student as you guys know you have kids, you, you were students yourself. It was a lot of money in 1980. It was like everything I had, I, I was gonna be beating ramen noodles for an extra three months. Um, and so, I, you know, two months later, a guy comes to me with, a, with what in essence is called a breadboard with lots of wires sticking And said, ah, it doesn't work, but that's all the work I'm gonna do on it. And I was so pissed off. I had basically been taken advantage of. Now the guy may have done, you know, put a lot of work. So at that time I said, screw this, I'm never gonna be caught in this kind of situation again. So I went to my dad. I went to the dean of the medical school and I went to the dean of the engineering school at Duke. And I said, I want to become an engineer. Now, again, I had nine months left of Duke Medical School. I'm going to take a leave of absence and go take undergraduate engineering courses, graduate engineering courses. And they were nutty enough to all let me do it. And so three years later.
1: So did you finish your, your, your medical degree as well? He eventually, right? You eventually finished it? I, I finished my medical degree. Uh, it was the last thing I
0: did. So I then did basically two years of engineering, undergraduate and graduate, and then went back and finished my last nine months of medical school. Uh, and then, and by that time, I had two inventions, including a wrist based heart rate monitor. that patent has been cited many, many times, uh, it was my first now I have 60 patents. And I built a, a Doppler ultrasound machine that I also licensed that became a, con, a commercial product. And then I went back to Oklahoma to do my training. And um, I got back there, and about four years later, I'm working in a cardiology lab as a research fellow, and I have invented another device, what, uh, basically an EKG micro, microscope. And I can't find a company that wants to license it. And they're all, I, I could name the companies. And I got pissed off. So I went to my wife, we have, a, we have a one child. She is an intern at the University of Oklahoma, having finished Duke Medical School. We had met uh, in the last month of my tenure in Durham. And um, I tell her, I think I want to quit my job for a company. <laughs> And How did that go I over? call my parents up and say, hey, you know what? I think I'm going to become an entrepreneur. And I don't know why.
2: And that was before it was sexy like it is now, right?
1: And in Oklahoma. <laughs> yeah.
2: Today, as as you know, we've talked about the 50 percent of Stanford and UCF medical students who
0: say they are never going to practice medicine. When I did it, I was clearly a lunatic. And all my friends thought I was a lunatic. And I think everybody, the chief of cardiology who just passed away, Ralph Lazera, but they humored me. I don't know why. Probably because I'd actually... built. What this. was the company? Uh, it was called Corazonics. And we built the company up to $2 million in sales in 1989 and ended up in patent litigation that went to the Court of Appeals and ended up selling the company to the company that had sued us. Uh, which still exists today as a fraction of what it was. But I ended up I sold the company, and we had licensed our technology, which to at the time Hewlett Packard Medical, which is today Philips. But at the time it was Hewlett Packard Medical, and um, and so we you know it it was a success in that we actually sold every major every major healthcare system, the Mayo Clinics and the Cleveland Clinics and the Mass General, all bought our technology. And and uh, you know I learned about patent litigation, something you don't want to do, but uh, it's part of medical technology.
2: But it, but also, Dave, Dave, you told me that that along the way, while you were interacting with with uh, HP, you saw an early personal computer, and that changed that, your life. That's
0: actually the rest of my life. So I'm working with HP Medical, which was head, the cardiology group was headquartered in McMinnville, Oregon. Um, which is a, an interesting little town south of Portland. Then farther south from there is Corvallis, Oregon, where Oregon State is, but it happened to be where the printers were developed for HP. Now that's in Boise, in Colorado, but by, at that time it was there, and they had a Skunk Works group that also did the calculators, and out of the HP calculator, which I had in college, reverse Polish notation, we all to learn that weird stuff, um, came this thing called an HP palm top. And I saw an early pre-production release of this little clamshell palm top computer, and I instantly was struck by the fact that this was gonna change the world. And so, when, when I sold Corazonics, I I went to HP and I said, I think we can turn this into an EKG machine. And they were like, oh yeah, yeah, sure, why, you know, but no, that's crazy. And so I went, and and with another, with my partner, my co-founder, uh, who was a double E, we built a prototype of an HP
2: palm-top EKG machine,
0: and that attracted uh, some venture capitalists who were not very smart.
2: That goes without saying, I thought, right? <laughs> and I started a company called Data
0: Critical. They weren't smart because they, they 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 too they believed my story that this was going to change medicine that mobile would change medicine and so at the time then HP said you know we think that's actually a pretty good idea so they came and licensed that technology from me they gave me at the time two or three hundred thousand dollars and there started along with a little bit of venture capital And by little I mean like four hundred thousand dollars started data critical we later got NEA in as the lead investor and I that became my experience in Sand Hill Road We went public in 1999, built it up to 37 million in sales, really became a pioneer in wireless healthcare. And then in 2001, GE bought the company and and they bought it they bought it to get it taken away from HP, which was their, their arch nemesis at the time.
2: So, so another uh, successful exit for you, but in addition, while you were at Data Critical, you had another idea which became a LifeCorp. But tell us about it, because we don't want to run out of time before you have a chance to tell us about the founding that, of a LifeCorp.
0: Well, that's what happened. Is In 1996, I said, you know, the, the shortest distance between two points is a straight line, and we should take directly from a patient their cardiac information and send it directly to a cardiologist. So we built a, a personal ECG device based on a palm top computer. At that time it was something called Scion, P-S-I-O-N, a British company. And we got a patent on it and they even got a 510K, got FDA clearance. We never introduced the product because it was a kludge. It really wasn't practical, but it was a vision of a personal ECG device. And that idea, once Steve Jobs in 2007 introduced the iPhone, and once they opened it up for developers with the App Store, my current partner and I, who is a aus- crazy Australian, um, I said, you know, we can make a smartphone EKG. And that was the genesis of, uh, of a LiveCore. And it was an idea that so I- So
1: did you start a LiveCore, Dave, and you started in 2007, 2008? 2011, was, we actually started working on it in 2009. When they opened up the App Store,
0: it took about a year to develop a, a really operational prototype. December 2010, I made my little four-minute video that it, it, you know, I just happened to post. 200,000 views in 48 hours, Consumer Electronics Show in January 2011, and the rest is history, whether it's uh, Vinod Khosla or Eric Topol. Uh,
1: Let's talk about the history a little bit, though, because, I mean, you, I, you know, I'm you came right at the beginning of what, you know, suddenly there was this term digital health, right? Right at the beginning of that, you're one of the very first products that anybody ever saw and um, attracted a lot of attention. But it's been not a straight line, right? I mean, there, you've had, I know, a lot of, you know, um, decisions to make about whether you're selling to consumers, to health systems or both, to whatever. You know, how has that business model evolved since you started that company?
0: Well, you know, it it was a journey because we had no model, Lisa. There was no model for for a live core. We did get not just a 510K on a product people were skeptical we'd get one on, but then we got an over-the-counter 510K that still today is the only over-the-counter ECG. And then we got over-the-counter approval for automatic algorithms. And nobody, not the people at GE or the people at Philips, the people at Medtronic thought that was possible. And I think we were an experiment for the for the FDA. So we began selling a product. We've had multiple generations. We sold it directly to both physicians and then later with the over the counter directly to consumers. But we quickly learned that we weren't just selling to the quantified selfers. And the average age of our of our customers, sixty one years old. And now we know that 60% of the re- of people who buy it, buy it because they're cardiologist
1: health. So you found that you really couldn't, the direct to consumer sale, I think, only worked if it was direct to consumer via the doctor. It, it, that's the majority. Because the tool ultimately, is, it, it does deliver peace of mind to these
0: cardiac patients, Lisa, but, but it also delivers valuable information for management, long-term management. I mean, there are very few cardiac problems you cure. You manage them. And so, we help the doctor, and so now our product is used by every major medical center, Cleveland Clinic, Mayo Clinic, Mass General, Stanford, Cedars. It doesn't matter because, you know, it's amazing. You'd be shocked, but they actually do care about costs. And the traditional medical technology, we, we never introduce anything that costs less. This is our product is unique from that. And, and now we actually have CPT codes. We were given our own codes. And we're just now getting into the uh, management. But we've sold, you know, we sold hundreds of thousands of devices, and we had investors who were patient enough and committed enough to 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 change the world that they funded us across the chasm. What I can tell you now is we have a very good business uh, that's growing significantly in lots of products, and we have, a business that people now subscribe to.
1: And so how do you see this evolving? I mean, so now you've been at it seven years, um, you know, the average life cycle from, from start to exit in healthcare is around 10 to 12. You know, how do you see the next couple of years evolving? Where does the company go now that digital health has, you know, become just health and health IT? How, how are are you gonna to continue to differentiate? How do you keep thinking about the evolution of the company?
0: Well, the good news is, is my kids say, I'm no longer a Dr. Lisa, I'm a mad scientist. And as, as I quoted David, I don't think outside the box. I live outside the box. And I've done it now for going on 35, 36 years. And so I can tell you, we introduced in, in November and got FDA clearance for an accessory watch band that turns the Apple Watch into a monitor. I can tell you without, I can't tell you exactly, but we have some amazing clinical data. And and I I would bring it up for that. You know, we led, how did, what was our first 510K? It took 70 days. As you know, it's a statutory 90, oftentimes takes much longer than that. Why? Because I went with a published paper to the FDA. I had proven our technology works. And to that end, we have now over 85 abstracts And journal articles we have one coming out I can tell you from the Cleveland Clinic next week at the American College of Cardiology that'll get a lot of press Um, we believe in science and so you have the likes of Mayo Clinic and Omron investing in a live core maybe part of it is an insurance plan Lisa that is we don't know what's going to happen with all that digital health health personal stuff but we need to buy an insurance policy, and Alive core looks like a pretty good insurance policy.
2: What's the segment that you're actually hitting? Who is it? The people who have a, a particular who have like atrial fibrillation and are trying to monitor it at home, or who are at risk for it, or who? What's the segment that's really, you know, seeing this as incredibly helpful for themselves?
0: The biggest segment is at, atrial fibrillation. You know, we do um, ablation. Is now a a major therapy for atrial fibrillation Mm -hmm. and and has proven more effective than drugs but the problem is a a successful ablation is only a, a treatment of a manifestation of a disease not the disease itself and inevitably after however many years it comes back because the disease process continues and these people live with the everyday potential that that this debilitating condition comes back. And so our product, you know, you get what we call PVCs, premature beats, ectopic beats, and they go, oh my God, is this AFib? Do I need to go to the ER? And we provide them peace of mind because we can instantly tell them it's not AFib. Or if they wanted more assurance, they can instantly get uh, an interpretation from their cardiologist or one that we provide in the app. And so I would tell you that AFib, because it's the most prevalent arrhythmia, is our largest population. But we have lots of people who have other arrhythmias, SVT. Uh, I won't say anything, to Lisa, but we have lots of SVT patients. We have people who have had even more serious arrhythmias. And so, you know, it's by and large patients. It's not uh, the worried well. It, it, worried well is probably a very small contingent because we want people, by the way, we want people to pay us, you know, a Netflix they want, we, you want value-add, we're going to give you value-add and
1: compliance. They're not live-core and chill. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> you have, that's a great motto for you guys. <laughs> hey, Dave, so so now you've been at it for a long time here in the digital health world. Uh, you w- were kind of at the beginning and, you know, you're very much at the beginning of it. And you're, you know, however many years in now. What, thinking, tech, stepping away from a live-core for a minute and looking at the whole field, what do you think is the biggest change that has occurred, you know, that, that sets the stage for where it goes next? What do you think is the most important thing that uh, other entrepreneurs need to know?
0: Clinical proof. Nobody wants Scanadoos, Theranos's. We've had enough of, I mean, I, you, you all live in Silicon Valley, I visit. but. Hype is a you know, Gartner Hype Cycle was built for Silicon Valley, best I can tell. And and we've had a lot of digital health hype. And those things come and go and people lose lots of money. But the sustained businesses will find not only clinical validation, but then as you as you note, business model validation. And I think we're 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 crossing the chasm to where the real businesses will get money. I think you know, you know better than I do about how much money is being invested in digital health. I think investors, the tech investors, some continue to invest, but I think some of them have been burned.
2: Well, that's what I wanted to get at you, David. David, the very last uh, like one minute that we have, sort of for your final takeaways, um, what what did, when you if you sort of had to distill your lessons, what do you today tell two different constituencies? What's your advice? Can, your concise advice for med students and finally what do you tell because I know you've had a lot of experience with them these tech VCs or tech investors what's your sort of concise message for them as well each of those groups?
0: Uh, well first of all for medical students having had my oldest son is a is the medicine resident at Cedar sinai and he's inter- interested in digital health but uh, I told him don't be like those 50 percent of UCSF and Stanford med students that say they won't practice medicine don't do what I do don't don't abandon medicine because it's really important you learn I I I had a very unique situation but uh, I think you need to have the credibility one so stay in medicine and get involved in digital health or entrepreneurship on the side certainly at first uh, that's number one number two is to the tech investors some of whom I know well um, do your due diligence, and do not dismiss expertise. You know, the notion that expertise is irrelevant is so wrong, and now I think I've taught some of them, and I have, you can't teach a lot of old dogs new tricks, but do not disdain reality and proof, and uh, don't consider it to be curmudgeon and and conventional thinking. Sometimes it happens to just be the truth. So uh, do your diligence.
2: That's. I think that's a great. Uh, I think that's a that's a terrific parting message. Um, domain expertise, which we're hearing from both medical folks, sort of who came from the medical engineering side, like you, and then also folks like Daphne Kohler. So um, fantastic show, Dave. We really appreciate your time, and we're so delighted you were able to join us this morning.
1: Thanks so much, Dave. David and Lisa,
2: thank you. It's been an honor. Well, I thought that was a really interesting show, Lisa.
1: Yeah, it is. You know, it's always interesting to talk to him because he has been at you know, at this digital health thing since before it was even called that and has managed to sustain through it, you know, and despite a lot of, I think, um, lack of understanding, not not just by the company, by everybody in the marketplace about how this is all going to play out.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, being almost ahead of the curve and then I'm waiting for it to catch up. I mean, a couple of things I thought were really interesting. First of all, you know... Um, how he really is an entrepreneur at heart and how there were so many times where something didn't work out and then he was motivated to fix it himself. You know, like, they they couldn't make him his you know some good device for his dad for blood pressure so he goes and does like five years of engineering and then he can't license a device that he mm-hmm. makes so then he goes and becomes an, and starts a company yeah. around it and yeah. so I really think he's, he's inspirational and, and relentless that way and I also think he's done a great job of really educating a lot of the folks at um in the Silicon Valley some of the unnamed tech investors um uh, about some of this. Many people, even his investors who were excited about what he was doing, they didn't. They, they, I think they had a skepticism about domain expertise that I think that he's helped them reach some sort of new equilibrium about. And I think that's really valuable.
1: Yeah. You know, the other thing is I, I was at a conference on, on aging and technology on Friday and a gentleman walked up to me and he said, I'm 73 years old and I have an invention in and in a company that I started, but it's hard for me to find capital you know, at my age, what would you recommend? And I and I think about, you know, Dave is, is also an older entrepreneur comparatively to what you see in Silicon Valley, and I think he's been very successful, so it's great that you know, we can, I can point to him as an example to this gentleman and say, "Look, you know, it can be done. You know, you just have to, re- you know, build a great team around yourself and keep going." You know, and I think it's it's excellent. Uh, and to see. and it's
2: specifically about the age issue, what's very interesting is I think the average uh, age of certainly successful CEOs on the healthcare side um, is much older. Yeah, it's like fifty-two um, or something. Yeah, like I that. mean, there's a nice review that uh, Bruce Booth uh, just wrote. Um, he's at Atlas. We're you know, actually characterizing the, you know, reviewing the age of the CEO in life science companies I think particularly Mm in their portfolio and it definitely skews older than you would think um, if you sort of were just watching these TV shows with these sort of like young hipsters but it's also something that reporters like um, uh, Sarah McBride who used to be at um, Reuters and is now at Bloomberg has written very thoughtfully about
1: Anyways, join us next time when our guest will be Catherine Chow Head of Product for Health Research and Medical Brain at Google
2: Google, I've heard of them
1: Yes, you have. And I, you can follow David's writing at Forbes.
2: Or Google them. And, um, <laughs> and you can follow Lisa soon at
1: adventurevalkyrie.com. We're grateful to our sponsor, DNA Nexus, the secure and compliant cloud platform that enables enterprise users to analyze, collaborate around, it, and integrate massive amounts of genetic and other health data. Tectonics
2: is produced by Connected Social Media and recorded in Tectonic Studio B in scenic Mill Valley, California. Oh, Oklahoma. Okay. L-A-H-O-M-A. L-A-H-O-M-A.
1: We're only saying you're doing fine, Oklahoma.
0: Oklahoma. Okay.